0: Hello
1: and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40, created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest this week is the behavioural and data scientist Dr Pragya Agawal. A passionate campaigner for gender and race equality, Pragya is the author of the much-praised Sway about unconscious bias and the host of the podcast, Wish We Knew What To Say, talking with children about race. Pragya is also the mother of three daughters. The first is now in her early twenties. Her twins are now age five. It's that journey from one sort of mother to another that led to her new book, Motherhood, a moving and rigorous personal exploration into what it means to be or to not be a mother when you don't fit society's mold.
2: And the notion that they can give birth, but they might not choose to give birth has always been this strange contradiction or the fact that they can't give birth has always been these strange contradictions.
1: Over the next 45 minutes, Pragya blows my tiny mind with her braininess about everything from the myth of choice and learning to embrace ambivalence, body image, being a good girl, how motherhood changed her relationship with her own mother, and why she wished she was her father's son. She also talks candidly about how brown women are invisible when it comes to fertility, premature menopause, and her ultimate decision to pursue surrogacy. Pragya, thank you so much for coming on The Shift. Could you describe for the listeners where you are right now, where you're sitting?
2: Yeah, so I'm sitting in my office slash studio. This is a room we converted from our garage when we moved into this house around five and a half years ago. And so it's quite a special place because before this, I never really had a room of my own, so to speak. And so I feel like when I shut this door, I can retreat into my space. It's actually really messy right now. So it's got piles and piles of books everywhere around me. It's got some lots of dry flowers, which for some reason I really like. I don't like throwing flowers away. So it's got lots of dry flowers around me and some shells and things that my children have collected.
1: I mean, there's so much to talk about. Tell me what prompted the book Motherhood. We're we calling it motherhood, we're we calling it otherhood. What are you, how do you describe it?
2: Yeah, that's a strange one, isn't it? I'm just calling motherhood at the moment, but it is about the otherhood and motherhood, really. Reflecting on my own experience through the years and how sometimes I've hidden away parts of me or not talked about my experience because I felt ashamed of it. For some reason, I was just drawn to these experiences and I realized how mothering, motherhood, the choice of being a mother, um, not being a mother, all those kinds of things have defined me for so long through my life. And as my older daughter was growing up, we were having more conversations around women and women's bodies and her own relationship with her body and how she'd seen my own experience with my own body. But I have two twins now, um, they are almost five and bringing up girls again and thinking about how their relationship with their bodies are going to develop. I was reflecting a lot on my own relationship with my mother. So lots of things, I think. And it started off as a very different book and it kind of landed into this shape that it is now. I think sometimes we hide away these experiences, which we feel are quite personal and intimate, but they have universal ramifications because society tells us that it's something to be ashamed about. And I feel like unless we share some of these experiences, we can't have a conversation, an open and honest conversation about these things.
1: That's... So much to unpack, isn't there? I think maybe let's start with you and what you were taught as a young girl. What did your mother teach you as a young girl about your body and your femaleness?
2: Um, I think if I look back, I don't think we ever had a conversation really about it, like an honest, open conversation. I formed a notion of my own body or my femaleness or my womanhood by observing other women in my life by seeing obviously movies and things but all those kind of things Impinge on you and imprint on you as the kind of notions that you form. And I think my mother is very empowering in a lot of ways in the way that she grew up as somebody whose own mother died when she was just 13 or something, kind of stepping into puberty. So I've always reflected on how that must have shaped her own experience of herself. She was very focused on our education and empowering us to be financially independent, all those kind of things always telling us. But as one of three girls, I think. We never had those kind of open conversations at home about what it means to be a woman, what it means to have this body and the notion of our bodies shaped by people around us and by us and and all those kind of things. So I think we are left to form our own impressions of these things.
1: Something that you said in the book really interested me about the contradiction in your upbringing, but also I think it will be familiar to many people listening. You know, even as your mother was encouraging you to be a doctor and be independent financially and achieve, you were having the notion of the good girl instilled in you. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I think that was a huge contradiction that I felt always about where are these limits and boundaries? How far am I allowed to step out of these boundaries and limits? And where is the line, you know? And I suppose um, I was the firstborn. There must have been a notion of protecting me from people around. I mean, now we're having more honest conversations here. But in India, street violence, harassment, sexual harassment against women it's been a huge thing i mean you're supposed to be invisible you're supposed to shrink you're supposed to not dress a certain way you're not supposed to be provocative you're not supposed to show your opinions you're not supposed to just be out there with your body you know the femaleness of your body or your curves and all those kind of things so i suppose she was she must have been scared suddenly i was growing up and how to protect me um, my father wasn't always present and available she must have felt this huge responsibility so on one hand, she wanted me to be empowered because she hadn't had that in her life, to be financially independent, to make my own mark, which was absolutely revolutionary for her upbringing, for the society that we were living in. Nobody was giving those messages to the children, especially the daughters. So that was completely unusual. She let me where, where I wanted. But there was always a limit and a line. And I was always confused about where that line was. And not just from her, but also from the rest of the society as well. So we were a how to step out and do things. And that probably the previous generation hadn't done. In that way, we were like really changing things. But then there was always the notion of, are you really a good girl? And you have to stick or conform to certain things to be able to seem to that. Otherwise, you can very easily be labelled as not very good, which again carries a lot of shame and stigma in society, especially in a very patriarchal society where misogyny is so deeply entrenched. So I think that paradox, that contradiction was always there. And I suppose I felt to a certain extent while bringing up my own daughter it's surprisingly, and I look back and reflect on it, as a single parent, I felt a huge responsibility of her being a certain way of just bringing up a person who I could feel proud of and who could feel proud of herself. And so I suppose when we have these conversations now, I feel like maybe I gave her some mixed messages as well. And I suppose we are doing that all the time, aren't we, to women saying that mm. you can do this, you can do everything But you cannot do these things. You can do things within certain limits. And while we were having these conversations around violence and street harassment recently, I was reflecting so much on bringing up my twins who are going to grow up Into women. I'm raising them as feminists, telling them they can do everything. There's no difference with anybody else. But how do I suddenly start telling them one day, there is a difference because men might be able to do this, but maybe I don't want you to go out after dark. Maybe I don't want you to be walking alone. Maybe I don't want you to be doing that because that's not safe for you. And I think it's it's the way our society is structured. And that is something that we really need to question and critique and talk about.
1: It's so difficult, isn't it? Your eldest is in her early 20s, isn't she? And then your twins are, are they five? Have you found a difference between, you know, being a mother in your 20s and being a mother in
2: your 40s and how you've socialized your daughters, I suppose? I suppose I've grown up and unlearned a lot of things and unpacked a lot of things over the years. So certainly that affects my mothering and the way I talk to my children. There is more information at our disposal certainly. I mean, there are more books, there's more information, there's more resources that I can learn from and I have learned from. So in some ways my values and And my principles are the same about making them feel confident about themselves and empowered and about their own bodies and talking to them honestly about things. So even with my oldest at that stage, it was still quite unusual to make sure that she said the right words for her body parts and actually didn't. Mm shirk away from it. And it was really unusual to talk about so openly about sex and sexuality and periods and all those kind of things. So I suppose those are similar things. I am more vocal about it now, perhaps with these children (laughs) now. And I suppose I have done a lot of unlearning about my own relationship with my own body. So that would probably have an influence as well. Also, I have thought a lot about how through our implicit actions and words, we can sometimes create shame in women or young women about their own body or their relationship with their own bodies and sexuality. So that's something I hope will help with my twins more. Yeah, so I think some of the values and principles are same, but I suppose I have more language or words or vocabulary for talking about some of these things.
1: Why do you think society is so scared of women's bodies?
2: Yes, I mean it's seeped in history, isn't it? Men are the ones who've written about it. Men are the ones who had the power or the privilege to talk about things, to write these testaments and manifestos and books and and so women's bodies were always kind of considered unusual and not the norm, right? We didn't mm-hmm. see much from women's own words. We don't see much in art or literature or in philosophy or history. We don't hear from women about how they felt about these bodies. And I suppose if we look back at religion or religious myths, there's always the notion of women being the other and men being the norm. So women's bodies are the ones who, are being punished for certain kind of indiscretions or something like that, or stepping outside their boundaries. And we know about the curse of Eve, and we talk about all those things. And on one hand, I find that contradiction so fascinating and sometimes infuriating about how in all these religious myths, you hear about women being put on a pedestal. So I grew up around Hinduism and all the notion of mother goddesses, and we talk about goddesses and worshipping them and worshipping women and, and all those kind of things. But on the other Hand, women are not do not have the same position in society because their bodies are doing things that men's bodies don't, and men don't understand them, perhaps through history. And the notion that they can give birth, but they might not choose to give birth has always been this strange contradiction, or the fact that they can't give birth has always been this strange contradiction. So there are lots of things embedded in it about how history is shaped and how male gaze has shaped the notion of what women's bodies are and what they should be. And we take on those things and it's become so deeply entrenched in the society about men being rational and and wise and women thinking more with their heart rather than with their minds. And so this dichotomy was set up in the Greek philosophers time about mind versus body. So women were always being seen as their bodies rather than their minds and men had the rational upper hand because they had the mind or the intellect for it. I mean, there's so much we can unpack there. There's
1: so much, isn't there? I just wanted to pick up on something that you wrote in the book. when You are talking about puberty and your own puberty and that really interesting notion of becoming visible and invisible at the same time and a kind of a visibility that you maybe didn't want and invisible in the areas where you maybe did want to be visible. But you said about your father that you wanted to be his son. What was it that made you want to be his son?
2: It's really difficult for me to talk about now because my father passed away in November. I mean, my relationship with him (laughs) was fractious at times. I was the one everybody in the family said he was closest to. I'm the oldest, and I suppose as being the oldest, there's a huge sense of responsibility I always felt. So in Indian culture, as I write about a lot, there's this whole notion of having a male heir, first born as the son, the boy or the son gives gati or lights the funeral pyre. He does all the rituals. He is the one who looks after the parents in their old age. The daughter gets married and is sent off to the other family. So there's also this notion about a girl or a daughter Water belongs to the father and then belongs to the husband's family. So she doesn't really have any say or identity of her own. I suppose as the oldest, I felt this acute sense of responsibility towards my parents, but towards my whole family and the fact that I wanted to be the one who he could rely on. I didn't want him to feel like he was alone, that he had to bear this burden alone because I knew how it was affecting him. I wish I could take away some of that kind of isolation from him that he must have felt as a man uh, surrounded by four women in the family, perhaps, and also in a culture which said, "Oh, daughters are not going to look after you or take care of you because they can't. And the fact that the people pitied him or talked about the fact that he didn't have a son I just wanted him to feel like he could rely on me, that I was there, that he wasn't alone facing this burden. So that was tied in with that. When I say these things, I feel like, yes, I'm conforming to those kind of ideas of men and women that the society was telling me. But yes, now, of course, things have changed a little bit. I couldn't be there for his death, but my youngest sister did all the funerary rites for him. So obviously, he didn't have a son, so she did it. So things have changed. But as I grew up, I suppose I also wanted to break free of those kind of shackles of being seen just as a girl and being limited in what I could do and couldn't do. And every time somebody said, oh, women are supposed to do this, I felt a sense of kind of dread and oppression and this claustrophobia that I really wanted to break free of. And so all those things, I have no idea how I felt like that from a very young age, but that's how I always felt. Recently, somebody asked me, so did you think that you didn't want to be a girl or a woman and I think that's a very huge difference between not wanting to take on the role that is given to you assigned to you because of your sex but in not being able to change the society you feel like if only I didn't have this body I would be treated differently and I think there's a huge difference in that.
1: I was really interested in the thread of belonging that runs through the book, you know, not feeling quite like you belong in India, not feeling quite like you belong in the UK, being a single mother, and then your fertility journey. I mean, it's all about what society thinks you should do as a woman, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think the sense of belonging, feeling detached from your own body a lot, You're always defined by your own body and your relationship of your body with society. We are embedded in the society and the culture that we are in through our own bodies and whatever shape that body takes. And I suppose in some context, you're seen more as a body than others rather than anything else. So even when we want to reject the notion that our bodies matter, our bodies do matter. And I'm not talking just about genitalia. I'm talking about the whole body. I'm glad that kind of struck with you or that you realize that because that's something that I... Really figured out while writing the book that even though I talk about a sense of belonging in terms of having feet in both worlds and not feeling quite at home here or back in India or thinking about a notion of India that once was but it isn't, and now how I'm seen here and I'm seen there because of this color of my skin or by gender or whatever the way i present myself to society but also it's about how i feel like belong to this body and the culture that i'm embedded in and also whether that sense of belonging is so important to me about how it defines my relationship with not just myself but other people especially when i'm talking about mothering and that is one question that i kept coming back to how do i become a mother and empower my children and raise children and create a true sense of their own belonging when I don't feel this sense of belonging within myself, you know, so.
1: Can you explain about your fertility journey? Because your first daughter you had when you were, were you early
2: 20s? Well, yeah, actually late teens. Um, I was just about 20 when I had her. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't quite expecting At that stage, because that wasn't a life plan, although that's a plan that people had for me. But I was always worried about what it would mean for me in terms of my career. And I suppose I wasn't talking about ambition very seriously because always being ambitious wasn't considered a positive thing, it was a negative thing. If you're too ambitious, That means you're not dedicated to your family or to the role that you're supposed to play. So you always keep it quiet and you always try and forget it and try and tell yourself that those don't matter. But it was something that I wasn't planning and I I felt pregnant. It was really interesting talking about my father because when I told him that, he was very surprised and he was actually not unhappy, I would say, but he was loyal. Is this the right time for you? And that felt to me like suddenly so empowering to realize that actually my own father can say this and he's not conforming to other kind of typical family expectations that, okay... You can have a child now. What's the problem? You know, he was thinking about me first, which was really unusual and really, really actually liberating thing for me. But anyway, I went ahead with it and through it, I realized so much within those seven, eight months. It was very traumatic pregnancy. I almost died. I came back to life. And but also that moment of having her made me realize about my own ambitions for not for myself, also but also for her about what kind of world am I bringing her in. And suddenly you have this sense of responsibility, not just for yourself, because sometimes we can forget that responsibility for ourselves, and we can ignore and dismiss it about ourselves. But for her, I suddenly felt this responsibility that I actually need to give her a better world, you know, better opportunities. And so I had her and then I got a scholarship to come and do a master's and PhD here in Britain, which was a university scholarship, um, but I still had to work part-time for it. So for a while, it wasn't possible for me to bring her here because I couldn't really bring her here on my own and do a PhD and all those kind of things, We just didn't have the financial resources. So she lived with my parents for a while in in India, which was uh, really difficult. But also I think about my parents and how supportive they were of this. I mean, I couldn't have done it without them. And that was... Also, going against the kind of societal grain or expectations for them as well, saying, Yes, if this is what you want to do, this is what you should do, and we are here for you. And I I suppose that is the kind of role model of parenting and mothering was really lovely for me to see as well and perhaps aspire to. But anyway, I brought her here after I finished my PhD, and I went back and forth all the time. I called her every night. It was a really difficult time, but I knew that she was happy and I knew that was the best place for her to be at that she had a secure settled place. But you always feel like you're not being a good mother, like a bad mother, and that kind of notion of what is good mother, what is bad mother. Mm. And then we were here, and I was talking to her recently about how those days, those years, those experiences shaped my mothering of her because I then kind of trying to also make up for the fact that I hadn't had her for a few years, the fact that I had to leave her behind, the guilt that you carry. And I suppose I got lost in motherhood, this all consuming notion of motherhood. And then, um, mm-hmm. I met my current husband and we were together for a while. And I write about this in the book about how I felt like maybe I should think about having other children. And we hadn't really seriously talked about it. For him, it wasn't a rush or a hurry. And this notion of biological clock comes in Mm -hmm. and all the fertility myths that you've been told. And you think, um, I don't feel the need right now. But what if in the future? And then if it's too late, then what happens then? But yes, then we went through a number of infertility treatments because we couldn't conceive. There were lots of issues and problems. And then um, we decided to undergo surrogacy because um, that seemed like the only option for us. And then we had our twins four years ago, four and a half years ago.
0: It was so fascinating to
1: me because it struck me that infertility and miscarriage do have quite a lot in common with menopause because of the stigma and shame and taboo around them. They're things that you're meant to just be able to cope with. If things don't go right, you're blamed and it's very often the woman. One of the things that interested me the most was you talked, I think it's just a fleeting reference to looking at photos that are attached to articles or, you know, you know websites about infertility and they're all white women and they're all as well a certain sort of white woman which is exactly the same with menopause and if you talk to any black woman or brown woman or in fact any white woman who's not middle 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 about looking for imagery of a menopausal woman there's even a right way to be wrong did you really feel that or were you just immersed in the trauma and discomfort of going through that process
2: Yeah, I mean, you're right. There is a right way to be wrong, yes. And the only certain kind of people undergoing this. First of all, as you say, there's shame and stigma attached. You feel there must be something wrong that I did. And you don't see people like yourself. So you always feel I must be the only one because I've done something wrong and I haven't done something right that I was supposed to do. And my body doesn't work in the way that everybody else's does because nobody else is talking about it. I can't see anybody else like me in this space. While I was undergoing it, I also felt very alone because there was nobody who was openly talking about it as a brown woman. Even when we hear stories, we read articles, we read blog posts, we read books, there's a certain experience that we read about a certain kind of person. And for me, the, another thing about this book was really important was to talk about the intersectional aspects of it. And the fact that actually we don't talk about how race, sexuality, socioeconomic status, how all these things affect the opportunities that we have, the barriers we have, and how our bodies are seen and judged and evaluated. These are the different nuances that we are not talking about because we are homogenizing everything and saying, actually, everybody who goes through menopause feels the same thing. Everybody who has periods feel the same thing. Let's all talk about moon myths. Let's all talk about normality of everything that everybody has their periods in 28 days. And even the research studies are actually just talking about a small sample and averages, but the media bylines that people read makes them out into this ultimate truth. And so we start believing in them as well, that whether our fertility falls down after 35 years or not, or this and that. And so it's all just like homogenizing everybody. But yes, race is certainly something that I noticed even when I was going to fertility treatments and clinics. I was the only brown woman there. I didn't see many people on forums. I didn't find many people who were talking about it. As you say, there's a certain view of things that we see in media and movies as well. We don't have many movies of Brown women undergoing infertility treatment or through surrogacy or through premature menopause or anything like that. It's because of racialization in our society. It's because of the hierarchical nature of how information is organized. It's about how we've decided who is an ideal woman, who is an ideal body. It's We've decided what template women have to follow all those kind of things, and I suppose that creates a growing sense of isolation. There are, is, of course, social and cultural aspects to it as well. About in certain cultures, we don't talk about these things, and in certain communities, we don't talk about these things as openly as others. And I think that is something that needs to be addressed too.
1: When you were trying to conceive, you were told by a consultant that you were going through premature menopause. You were in your late 30s. Was that actually the case?
2: Yeah, I mean, now I, there wasn't very clear information about it. And I think we were just so focused on conceiving and making a, a cycle successful. You'd get lots of blood taken. I mean, even now, I mean, you did all these tests. Nobody actually gives you the figures that come back. Either They tell them everything is normal or they say, oh, we need to repeat blood tests. And nobody gives you clear information, transparent information. And as I said, on websites, there's different information. Nobody really has any any kind of idea or clue about what these figures mean. First time I heard was like, oh, we'll get an AMH test done because we need to figure out how many eggs we can get after an IVF treatment or not, or how was the success rate of this? I hadn't heard of it. And nobody explained. And you're worried about asking because you think, oh, am I asking too many questions? Are they going to see me differently because I asked too many questions? And I want them to be on my side. I want them not mm-hmm. to think of me as somebody who creates problems or is too difficult. No, I want to be accommodating, just do everything that they want me to do so that we can make this cycle successful. Basically, it's a lot of time, energy, emotional, physical, financial that goes into these things. So, yes, I did undergo premature menopause because after the last cycle, after we underwent surrogacy, my periods were very regular and then I stopped and I was in the middle of this. New motherhood, and I didn't even realize. You don't think about these things. You think, oh well, it was an inconvenience anyway. But maybe it will come back. Maybe it will not come back. Mm. There were other things to think about, and I did mm. think about that. And nobody asked me about it. Nobody asked me, oh, actually, these were the figures in your last blood test. What's happening now? You know, how are you feeling now? Because at that time, nobody really asks a new mother or a woman, how are you doing now? You know, how are you feeling? Basically. So yes, I did undergo it, but it was only sudden realization later on that I had. Maybe there is a genetic element to it because recently I asked my mum for the first time when she went through menopause and she went underwent really early not as early as me in my late 30s and I realized I'd never talked to her about it that she had never told me when she was undergoing it because I was young and as a teenager or whatever and she never talked to me about it so I suppose we need to talk more about this to our own children our daughters the women in our families about how it might affect them in the future as well
1: yeah because you refer to it and it's just a passing reference but you refer to it as a signifier of decline and I think that so many people will identify with that feeling that this is the end even if you don't feel kind of growing up going through your life like you're a person who's defined by your fertility the reality is that that's how society defines you and when it's taken away gone that's it And your situation was slightly different for you because you were in the process of surrogacy and you've got two little girls now. But did you think about that separately to what you were going through or was it just all part and parcel of the process for you?
2: I didn't really think about it that much while I was going through that process because there was so much else to think about. And mm-hmm. I was just really focused on that. And And I think the first year was such a haze after the children were born. I didn't even know whether I was alive or whether I wanted to be or it's just so many emotions. And it was only recently in the last six months that I started thinking about its effect on my body and what it meant for me and reading more about it. And <laughs> which was as an educated person, I, I feel a bit embarrassed and ashamed about it the fact that I didn't even give it consideration about how it's affecting me my mental state my emotional state my physical state what I should be doing more what can I do more I didn't read up all all those things and I was getting so angry and emotional all the time and my husband said I just can't deal with your anger because you're angry all the time and I stepped back and realized actually okay there are lots of reasons for me to be angry because I'm so tired and exhausted all the time but is it just that or is there's something else going on. What does being too angry mean anyway? And all those kinds of mm. get so defensive about it am I being too angry? But yes, I mean, the effect on body. And then I started reflecting on what does it really mean for me? How do I feel about it? And I've really thought about it a lot in the last six months about do I feel a sense of loss? Yes, I suppose so in a way, because now I'm changed in a lot of ways. And although it is not a part of what should define me, but it does define me, as you say. And so now what does it mean for me? Is it like, start of the end kind of a thing now, like a downward slope from here, you start reflecting on all those things. And I suppose my father's death made me think so much more about my own mortality as well. So that was kind of in Mm -hmm. mind with that. And you always worry my children will grow up, I'm going to be here for them or not, you know, but in terms of my body about what it can do and cannot do is something that I've thought about more in the last six months. And I suppose there is this shame and stigma. And there is this notion of you always hear menopause happens to people much, much older. And so you don't realize when it happens to you about how do I feel about that myself. And then there are all these things. I bought a recently some kind of tincture or something about menopause because I thought maybe I should do something about it, you know. (laughs) So it said something like it was something about you're not a dried prune or something. And I felt so... (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) like... Buying. That's reassuring.
1: <laughs> and you still bought it. You still gave them your money. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you were like, yeah, that's what we do is into this whole capitalism that we are in bed. Mm-hmm. And yes, and I don't feel like a huge sense of loss or a dread. I suppose there's just one part of me that's changed and it doesn't really define who I am.
1: You write a lot about the myth of choice. I mean, some people do choose to have children and some people do choose not to, but also choice is very relative. I went through menopause a bit later than you, but still quite early. The thing that I hadn't wanted anyway was taken away. you constantly through your 30s and into your early 40s. You're asked about children. Are you going to have a child? Are you going to have another child? As if it's it's just expected. Yeah. And it's not it's not a question that is asked of men on the whole. But you write interestingly about the male menopause and about the fact that whilst men don't have a menopause in the way that women do, there is a kind of a dropping off of fertility for men in their 40s. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, by researching this book, we hear stories of men becoming fathers at a much later stage. And so men have this luxury to not think about it and to not worry about it because, oh, whatever, even when I'm 50, I can still think about having a child. So all these pressures are there. But um, I started researching it and talking to people more about it. And there isn't that much research. There is a little bit about what happens in in terms of the sperm motility or the degradation of the sperm and in terms of how it affects different men. And uh, we don't talk about those. We only talk about the ones that we hear as success stories as the outliers again, again. And we don't hear about the men who've had problems in terms of their fertility. We don't hear those stories because again, I suppose there's a different kind of shame associated with men not being fertile. And there's maybe a huge sense of responsibility for men to be fertile because it's so inherently linked to masculinity, I think, in some ways in our society. So there's not that much research because women's fertility is a big industry, really. And there's more focus on it in the way that it's a money-making machine by making women... Mm -hmm more insecure about their fertility from a very young age about their own bodies. It's a huge capitalist thing. And there's difference in men and women. Of course, we have in terms of male and female bodies, but within female bodies and within male bodies, there are differences. And so we cannot just assume everybody is the same just because we were born in a certain body and we were had a certain sex. So I suppose, yeah, we need to again think about the, the law of averages. We need to think about the differences within groups rather than, just between groups that we tend to focus so much on.
1: This is one of those questions that's absolutely enormous. But um, how do you think we go about changing the narrative around motherhood and our bodies?
2: I think education, certainly from a young age. I think, first of all, we need to move away from the status quo bias and say this is how things have always worked so what's the point of re-examining or evaluating or even questioning or critiquing it because people don't want to do that it's uncomfortable um, there is a sense of cognitive dissonance and always a, it's a huge energy is has to be taken up if you want to change the narrative so first of all there has to be a desire from everybody to do that but I think education is really key in terms of from a young age not really getting trapped in these binary dichotomies these dichotomies of men and women or boys and girls and and really laying down these lines and divides from a young age is so harmful for children who suddenly realize they belong to one or the other and they have to conform to one or the other, to these roles and expectations. Sex education is really important, I think, from a young age and very open, honest, transparent conversations, because the more education we provide, the more we can empower people to be comfortable with their own bodies, no matter what kind of bodies. And I suppose we really need to in research, I think in scientific research as well, we need to think about the templates that have been imposed on us from bodies saying this is the testosterone level that a typical woman should have or not have. And this is what defines a woman because women are not designed according to a template. There are lots of different kinds of bodies and what they can do and not do. Not every woman has a period. Not every woman has twenty-eight days periods. Those kind of things. I think scientific research we need to examine that these are so much waste in colonial ideas and white supremacist ideas about what makes a woman. Even biology textbooks give us this idea of who is passive and who is active and, and these models of the gendered roles are defined by those as well. So I think we have to start from a young age about breaking down these divides and lines and boxes and boundaries. And as you said, choice is not separate from the context we are based in. And we might think we have a choice, but we don't often have a choice. We just choose what we think is the best for us or what society chooses for us. In an idealized world, everybody would have the same choices, irrespective of where they are, what they are, and what gender, sex, sexuality, whatever they are. Um, but to move closer to that, I think we have to start young. We And as grown-ups, we have to and learn so much of our own language and vocabulary and biases because we are entrenched in this and we conform to this, we internalize this, no matter how much we think, we don't. And I think we need to do that, unpack that. Yeah, it
1: it really struck me reading Motherhood that, and I get this totally, I feel exactly the same, all the way through you are I don't want to say apologising because it doesn't seem, like, fair. But, you know, you're worried about letting the sisterhood down, aware of what you're not conforming to, worrying about giving your daughters the right message. Yes. You worry a lot, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you worry less about these things than you did? Is that changing as you've got
2: older? I think I worry more. (laughs) Oh, no. No, I think i tell you why. Because I think when we don't know much, we worry less because that is what we do. And then when we know more and we are so conscious of doing the right thing and you're still making up your mind through a lot of things, you worry more. You Don't worry whether you're doing the right thing or not, but you do worry about whether you know enough. And I think that is a danger as you grow older. But also, yes, I worry less because I feel more confident of my choices. I feel more comfortable with it, with my own body and with what it can or cannot do. I feel more comfortable with the choices that I have made now, and I don't regret any of them. And I feel more comfortable in my own mothering or parenting, I think, in the sense that I don't feel this huge sense of responsibility that it defines me, which I felt as a young single parent that I had to be the best mother I could ever be. You know, I don't feel that sense of responsibility anymore. So I feel a bit liberated from that role. There's more space for my ambivalence now as well. I don't have to be completely sure of Something black and white, I give more space to it, which I didn't before, which not through my fertility journey, I didn't give space to, or even mothering the first time around as a young parent. I felt like I had to have all the answers then, which I don't now. I worry less about having all the right answers. I feel like, okay, I don't know some of the things, but I will find them out or I will learn as I go along. So, yes, I, I worry less in some ways, but I worry more in other ways. And I think worrying, guilt, is always a part of being a mother, motherhood, parenting, being a woman, but also somebody who works in this field of race and gender. There's so much to learn and unlearn every day about our notions of gender and sex and how that defines us in our society. And every day I see these conversations and these discourses, and I feel like we need to do so much more, but we all need to learn so much more as well.
1: That's great. I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask now. What's your emotional age? <laughs>
2: Gosh, that's a really tricky one. I would say my emotional age is now. I'm 44 and that's my emotional age because I do feel very comfortable with my emotions. Not all the time, but most of the time, I'm okay to say my emotions are valid. I want to also empower my own children to be able to say how they're feeling without apologizing for their emotions. My 40-year-old recently said, actually, you made me feel really bad right now and I don't like that. That (laughs) That's really, really moment for me. That's
1: your job done. Could you uh, recommend a book that's either meant a lot to you or a book that you would, you know, push on a friend.
2: I found Rachel Cusk's Life's Work really, really useful and empowering. I read it in the first year of my children's birth and I felt like the first time it was okay to say this is a difficult process, but I don't have to always smile and say, oh, I'm having the best time of my life because ain't I lucky to have children, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's okay to say I'm really struggling actually. And I know she got a lot of criticism for that as well, which also shows how Motherhood is idolised and we're not supposed to talk about it, honestly, which is another big conversation about how our media and Instagram and everything creates those images. It gives space to ambivalence. It gives space to these negative feelings that we bury deep and don't talk about them openly. I mean, there are so many other books, but yeah, that one sticks out just now.
1: What one piece of advice would you give younger women?
2: How you're feeling matters. As I said just now, your emotions are valid, your feelings are valid. Sometimes we try and shape ourselves according to how society sees us or sometimes we think what we think and feel doesn't really matter that much because our society gives us messages that maybe you're not thinking right you shouldn't really worry about what others say about those choices or how they feel about those choices you matter and you can make your own choices and you're free to do that no matter what I think even what's your superpower (laughs) My superpower is having 100 tabs open at the same time and being <laughs> navigate those. No, I think my superpower is being able to think a lot of things at the same time, I think. And I used to think that was a limitation. We are told that we're supposed to work in a certain way. We are supposed to act a certain way. But my superpower is saying, okay, actually, I, this is how I work. This is how my mind works. This is how I navigate different things. I jump from one thought to another. I go down rabbit holes. I do a lot of things at the same time. Time, but this is how I work best. So, Who is
1: your old bird role model, an older woman who inspires you?
2: My mother, I would say my mother. We are very different people. So I would never say I want to be exactly like her in every way. And she knows that. But she inspires me because she's so resilient. She has gone through a lot in her life really a lot which could have broken anybody and I think the way she has empowered us all her three daughters and the given opportunities she's given us and how she still acts with elegance and charm and calmness and how cool she is about things and how open-minded she is so even today she's almost 80 and I can talk to her about uh, homosexuality or I can talk about transphobia and transgender and and she was so cool with her granddaughter coming out and and it's just the open-mindedness she has she just really inspires me to her age and the culture she comes from. Sounds incredible. Cheers.
1: Um, last one
2: How many fucks do you give? not at all (laughs) (laughs) no I don't actually anymore I don't really care that much about what people think I do get sometimes still caught up in those internalised notions of the house is not clean that's my responsibility or if somebody's coming over I have to portray this role of being the ideal housewife or the ideal mother or all those things but no honestly I don't care
1: that's absolutely great thank you for giving me so much of your time this morning Pragya
2: thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure
1: Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.